nothing to do with the church being the ruling body in the earth that it's been called to be. It's this issue of truth. Because if you think about it, this isn't really part of my notes, but um, in Ephesians, where it talks about that the church was intended to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. If we are called to reveal the manifold wisdom of God, that means that through our lives, the wisdom of God is revealed. But ultimately, we have to embrace and we have to expect, accept the wisdom of God ourselves, that he is all wise and that all wisdom comes from him, that there is no wisdom outside of him. I mean, if you think about it this way, even the clip that we just saw about nefarious, when you think about, there's many of you in this room that the atrocity of sex trafficking just seems so far beyond human comprehension. But I'm just going to say to you that that right there is the fruit of a truth issue, of how you judge and base truth according to truth. Because there are many people that think and can justify in their mind, because it's void of the wisdom of God, they'll justify in their mind that as long as someone is paying money for a service, and they're going to justify it as a service without understanding truly the issue of slavery, the issue of bondage, they have completely been given over to a debased mind of even understanding the rights of the free will of humanity of understanding individuals that are being brought captive in slavery. You know what it is? Is they've abandoned truly the wisdom of God, and so therefore they're subject to their own wisdom, their own reasoning, and how they want to justify and play it out. Now, let's just be honest. If I told you that we're going to do in the next four weeks on the love of God, everybody would have, like, goosebumps. Everybody would be like, ooh, love of God, love of God. Because I've been in the church my entire life. There are certain topics that are unifying we all go, yeah, too. We can all agree upon. There's nothing offensive about the love of God. It's so, which he is love. It's warm. It's fuzzy. It makes you feel good. He's all embracing. He's all encompassing. You know, it's all of those things. But when you start, we can all quote the passage of scripture, God is love. And he is. But the interesting thing is there's, a, so God himself is love. We're actually going to look at, do we, do we all agree that Jesus was God incarnate? He was God became flesh, was Jesus, right? And Jesus declared about himself. So this is a, de a declaration of God as well. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And he went on to say, which is a very, very controversial statement, no man comes to the Father but through me. How about this? I'll put that as our theme passage of scripture for a nice series of citywide meetings. <laughs> I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. See, even that passage of scripture alone is something that causes contention. It causes discord. It causes debate and strife because all of a sudden what you've done is you said he is the way, which actually means there is no other way outside of him. So your way don't work. The Republican, the Democratic, the whatever other subjective way doesn't work. It is his way that works. He is the truth, which actually he is love. It's who he is. He is truth. There is no truth outside of him. Which literally means that everything that you want to embrace, embrace and adopt as truth, it has to be subject to who he is. 
And if he is not in agreement and not in partnership, it's not truth. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. See, you start preaching that message and all of a sudden numbers dwindle. There's certain messages you can preach and it's the unifying coming together. But then if we want to embrace the full counsel of God... If we want to see glory and honor restored to the church of Jesus Christ, if we want to see, like it says in Ephesians, the church becoming a display of the manifold wisdom of God, it's the embracing of the truth that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. I'm going to give you really quickly before we go into scripture, I'm going to give you a couple of statistics as far as where we are culturally with the issue of truth. This is actually James Dobson. And are you, is anybody familiar with James Dobson? He actually has a book that's called um, What Americans Believe. And what he said is that interviewees were asked, do you agree strongly, agree somewhat, disagree somewhat, or disagree strongly with the following statement? There is no such thing as absolute truth. Different people can define truth in conflicting ways and still be correct. So the embracing of there's no absolute truth, you can define it, you can define truth as you see it, and still be correct. We can all be correct. That was what he was pretty much putting before them. Only 28% of the respondents expressed strong belief in absolute truth. Only 28% of the people that responded said that there was absolute truth. And more surprisingly, only 23% of born-again evangelical Christians accept that idea. That's of Christianity. That's of the born-again, professing to be born-again, believes that there is an absolute truth. What a telling revelation. If more than 75% of the followers of Christ say that nothing can be known for certain, Does this indicate, as it seems, that they are not convinced that Jesus existed, that he is who he claimed to be, that his word is authentic, that God created the heavens and the earth, or that eternal life awaits the believer? What what the findings appear to me, this is what the findings appear to mean. If there is no absolute truth, then by definition, nothing can be said to be, oh, I'm sorry. If there is no absolute truth, then nothing by definition can be said to be absolute truth. To the majority, apparently, it is all relative. Nothing is certain. It might be, it might not be. Who knows for sure? Take your guess and hope for the best. So pretty much, he's actually saying 70% of the followers of Jesus Christ. That's not even like culture at large. And they actually broke this study down to specifically to our youth culture that declares to be believers, and 9% of the youth population that claim to be believers in Jesus Christ actually believe that there's an absolute truth. So that's what, do the math for me, go ahead. (laughs) The rest of the 91%, (laughs) 91% that do not believe that there is an absolute truth. So amongst the adults, kind of older generation, that might be some of you in this room, unfortunately, I'm probably classified in that as well, about 75% believe that there's no absolute. Now, what's ironic about this is some of you might be thinking, okay, well, we're talking about issues of, like, salvation and things like that. What this actually translates into is in every detail of our life, 
If we don't believe in the absolute number one of Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, do you understand that when we make truth subjective, it affects every detail of your life? It affects your finances. It affects your language. It affects your entertainment choices. It reflects your relationship choices. Every detail of your life, if there is no place that you are drawing the absolute truth, and see, this is what I found. I've worked with youth ministry. I've worked with young adult ministry. I've kind of been across the boards. And what I found is that amongst our generation of younger people, that there might be the embracing of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But what has come into question hugely is how the word of God is to be translated in our generation and in our time. What I have found is that young men and young women, which I guess it's not just young men and young women, because even as the statistics say, 75% don't embrace the absolutes of the word of God being true and that everything is subject to that. What I've actually found is it brings everything else into question because when you bring the word of God to the table saying this is what the word of God says, what you end up finding is people debate and reason the word of God according to their experience, according to our cultural circumstance. Somehow we think it is subject to us rather than us being subject to the word of God, which is how many of you guys are familiar with the passage of scripture? that actually says that the word of God is eternal. These words are eternal. Do you understand what that means? That means that when this book was recorded and written, it was not for a certain time period or a certain dispensation. It wasn't for a certain people group, a certain region, a certain geographic location. It was the eternal word of God that never changes. And what we need to understand and be renewed in our minds, science changes people. So if you're relying your data and your information and some of your life choices based on what science says today, I guarantee you by next year, 10 years from now, they're going to say, oop, new research says. Culture changes. Opinions change. Education change. The education system has changed what it's taught because it's subjective and it's relative. And until the church comes to the fundamental embracing that the word of God is eternal and what the word of God says is our authority, it is how we order our life, it is how we structure our life, and all of our life is subject to the word of God. You don't get an excuse because you came from abuse. You don't get an excuse because you live in Boston and the Christians here Don't do it like that. There is no excuses. What it is, is we bring our life in alignment with the word of God of saying this is absolute because we want to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. So Jesus said in John 14, 16, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So we see God himself as truth. We see Jesus as truth, and we actually see the Holy Spirit as truth. John 16, 7 through 13. I'll read it for you if you don't have your Bibles. This is Jesus speaking, and now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit, the helper. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. This is the 
the job title of the Holy Spirit. Let's all see if we like the Holy Spirit, okay? Let's see if we're in favor (laughs) of the Holy Spirit. Because all I know is the description of the Holy Spirit in many circles in modern Christianity We're opposed to the conviction of sin. Somehow that's become condemnation. This is the role of the Holy Spirit. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Because they do not believe in me. It's very odd, but for some reason, (laughs) I'm actually going to turn there. The way that this translation, which I don't like it at all, let me turn to John 16 really quickly. I actually don't like the way that that translation. Does anybody have New King James? You do? Do you want to read it? Um, Actually, if you want to pick up um, in verse 8. Okay, and in verse 12 it says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, here we go. However, when he, the spirit of truth, everybody say spirit of truth. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. When he, the spirit of the truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. This is the Holy Spirit he's speaking about. God is truth. Jesus himself is the way, the truth, the life. And the Holy Spirit is truth. He is the spirit of truth, and it is the Holy Spirit that will lead us into truth. It is by the Holy Spirit that we are led into truth. I'm going to read you guys one more passage of Scripture. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12. This is actually speaking about a love for truth. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of the Holy Spirit with all signs and wonders and and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. This is verse 10. Because they do not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So it's actually speaking about those that perish actually perish because they do not receive a love for the truth. As we've just seen, truth is actually not a concept. It's a person. If we love Jesus, we are to love truth. If we are loving truth, we love Jesus. Truth originates with a person. Its source comes from a person. So this passage of scripture in 2 Thessalonians, it's actually talking about the end times and the great perishing that's coming. It's literally pinpointing. The issue is they did not receive a love for truth. 
What that actually indicates is just like we said, the 75% of born-again, spirit-filled believers that claim the name of Christ but actually say there is no absolute. Do you know what that's an indication of? They're not fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. And when you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, you have clarity to rightly discern what is true and what is false because it's a person. You can identify the person you are in fellowship with. And if you have ever bought into the lie, well, who can really know truth and who's the absolute? All of those things. The word of God, we're going to look at three points. The word of God is very clear. Number one, you are to know truth. And there is a way to decipher if you are walking in truth. You don't have to question. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to be in fear. This issue of truth, I'm going to say, I I actually sincerely believe and I can even understand where like the whole tolerance thing comes in because if we're saying Jesus is the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father but by, by me some people then bring that to the next phase of oh that makes Christians hostile towards others and that makes Christians intolerant of others that is not necessarily truth because what we find is Jesus himself Jesus himself, with no apology and no compromise, declared of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. But he was not hostile toward the sinner. He came with a heart of compassion to redeem all that were lost. So if we, and and I actually think it actually comes, if you think from uh, Christopher Columbus, most of you know history. Christopher Columbus didn't just come and conquer the new world. Christopher Columbus came as a very hostile Christian. He did the, the type of thing of, you know, basically you, you, you come and you repent and you give your life to Jesus or you burn at the stake. That's the way he took over. I mean, that's not cool. <laughs> I mean, we don't want to be represented as Christians that way. I mean, let's just be honest. In its nature, that's precisely what's happening in Iraq is the hostility of you embrace this way or there's hostility towards you. The fact of the matter is Jesus himself declared the absolute of who he was without apology and without compromise. But in the declaration of that, he still had a heart of love and compassion for for humanity. And we understand at the very nature and core, Jesus wants people that love him by choice, not by force. So even those that reject him, there's not an intolerant attitude towards them. It's an understanding of he wants willing lovers, not those that come to him by force. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12 is what we just went over as far as because they did not receive a love for the truth that they might be saved. Verse 11, and for this reason, God will send them strong delusions that they should believe the lie and that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we actually find a linking right here between believing the truth, loving the truth, and finding pleasure in unrighteousness. So let's just cover really quickly, what is truth? How do we discern truth? And how are you going to know if you're in truth? The Bible is very clear. Number one, truth is in Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus, we already went over this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by me. You cannot know truth outside of Jesus because truth will be relative to the circumstance. Truth will be relative to education, science, culture. But number two, and more importantly, more specifically, because this is even how we come to know Jesus, truth is revealed through the word of God. John 17, 17, 
is where we're going to focus, but I'm going to start in verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. We could just stop right there and preach a whole message. (laughs) Because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Say it out loud. Sanctify them by your truth. We're sanctified by the truth. Then he goes on to say, what is the truth? Your word is truth. If you want to be sanctified and if you want to know the truth, you better get in the word. You better weigh your life by by the balance and the understanding of the word of God. You bring everything into subjection and to submission to the word of God. If you cannot find the scriptural authority to endorse your life and your behavior and your choices, you should just throw it out. Forget trying to reason and rationalize and come up with your bazillion excuses. You know what I love is when you're kind of talking with people about the word of God or an area of their life, I love that everybody wants to throw out, well, I don't want to be legalistic. I don't want to like so adhere to the word. You should probably have a fear of being carnal. Maybe you should subject your life to the word to a greater measure. This passage of scripture alone, I want you to say it out loud with me. Sanctify them by your truth. Say it a lot. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. If you want to know how do you know truth in the midst of a culture and society that is preaching so many different messages, it's by the word of God. We, we have to adhere to, we have to soak our mind. Your mind needs to be renewed by the word of God. Shut off the television. Shut off all the other input that you are getting mixed messages from. And start getting a clear, undefiled message from the word of God. Your word is truth. So the question, how do you know truth? It's from the word of God. From the word of God. I, I would challenge you, any area of your life, you, you know it. We all know the areas in our life where we feel the convicting of the Holy Spirit. We feel the weight of the Holy Spirit. You could almost call it like the nagging of the Holy Spirit. Kind of like, you know, he's so gently just reminding us, remember. <laughs> and we know, we, you all know how this goes. The intellectual debate that we have with the Holy Spirit. We excuse it, we condone it, we justify it. Instead of just yielding and surrendering our life to the leading of the Holy Spirit, what did we just discover? The Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. That if we want fellowship with him, we have to remain in in fellowship and yielding our life to truth. Submitting our life to truth. John 8, 31 through 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth. If we abide in his word, we're his disciples. And you have the confidence that if you abide in the word of God, that you will know truth. I don't want to get into any kind of 
I mean, not because I'm afraid to touch it biblically. I have no problem doing that. I just don't want our message to go that far extreme. But I, w- I was just reading this week about a very controversial issue. And because of something happening in Europe, it's really Im- impacting the church in Europe. And, um, and it's relating to a moral issue and the posture that the church has taken on the moral issue. And that there's this whole theology that is now being adapted and contrived and, and being taught to justify, excuse, and condone this moral issue. And as I was reading it, what I was realizing is it really goes back to this issue of truth being relative. That instead of actually taking the word of God at face value, most of these theologians are not even taking it back to the true Hebrew and Greek text. What they're actually doing is contorting and configuring the word to adapt to what they desire it to say. And the amount of confusion that, it, I mean, it's, yes, it's in Europe, but it will largely affect us as well. It's the horror that where we are headed, within, even in Christianity, is that the next five to ten years, we will be in a completely apostate people unless we adhere to the word of God violently. That unless we come to the place that we are so convinced that there is no truth outside of the word of God, that unless that is what we adhere to and what our loyalty is to, that we will go astray, that we'll be people given to deception. That's actually what we found here where it talked about in the last days, those that perish because they did not love the truth. A love and, a, and truly a violent allegiance to the truth This last passage of scripture that I just read, you shall know the truth. Actually, which was the last one I gave you? Oh, um, John 8, 31 through 32. I gave you that. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. See, what's happening oftentimes, people are seeking freedom. Freedom. Freedom from religion. Freedom from legalism. All of those things. They're seeking freedom, and they're seeking it outside the boundaries of the word of God. That somehow they've been free from what the church taught them or what the, you know, and somehow they actually have justified that they can have a relationship with God and be outside of the truth of his word. Where the word of God, this declares that he is truth, that if as you abide in him, you'll know truth, and the truth will set you free. Abiding and fellowshipping with him and subjecting the, our lives to the word of God literally brings freedom in our lives. It brings freedom, and you know why? It's because you're not living according to the fear of man. You're not living according to the opinions of man, and you need freedom from yourself. When we begin to develop our own doctrine and ideology, our own theology of who God is, what the church is called to be, somehow we set ourselves up as a God, that somehow we think we know better than him. When he has the manifold wisdom, He is before all things. He is the head of all things. He is above all things. He is the created order. And just even like Job, when he began to question, what are you doing, God? Why are you allowing this to happen? God gives him an entire dissertation. Where were you when I set the boundary lines for the ocean to go this far and no further? Where were you when I put the stars in place? See, we have to go back to the majesty and the wonder and the awe of who he is. He's all wise. And we have no wisdom outside of him. 
We're foolish. We're perishing. We're destructive. We bring ourselves into bondage and captivity. And if you are not subjecting your life to the word of God and the authority of the word of God, what you are doing is you are coming into bondage to your own carnal nature. I can remember when I was going through Bible school. Here I was like 18, 19, whatever years old, having like theological debates with some of my teachers, people that I respected. (laughs) Because at that particular time, there was such a form of carnal Christianity. And to be honest with you, I didn't come out condemning it. I wasn't all like, yay, you're bound by your flesh. I was just going to hold my peace and just, I knew the course for my life. I knew what the Holy Spirit had spoken to me for that season, for a season of prayer and fasting. I was just going to do it. Just go about my business. Just be who I was. Still friendly to everybody. (laughs) But I came under a little bit of fire, and I came under a little bit of criticism of being legalistic. And I remember, you know, when there are people that are teaching you and over schools, (laughs) you start to go, ooh, maybe I'm an error. I remember going back to my room and just weeping before the Lord and being like, I don't feel, I don't feel like bound. I don't feel the lack of joy. I'm finding great joy in my abandonment and my surrender and my seeking the Lord. And I remember the Lord brought me to the passage in 1 Peter that says, those that claim freedom and liberty from the law are those that are actually bound by their flesh. And I remember it as I was, because I was really weeping before the Lord, just kind of going, I don't understand this. I don't know. And, you know, I don't want to divulge too much, but specifically, even that season of time, the Lord ended up getting me out of there. There ended up being major, major moral collapse, like major things that ended up happening. And I remember looking back, and at that point, I was like 20, and I remember looking back and saying, The fact of the matter is when you give yourself to carnality, when that is what you justify and you excuse and you condone, it's only a matter of time before that sinful nature actually rules over you. It's no longer you ruling and determining to what measure and what mixture. There's a place where you come into true bondage and captivity. And it was so clearly displayed and manifested before my eyes when I was 19, 20, you know, that whole season of my life, that it marked me so clearly of being able to rightly understand the difference between freedom and liberty. That's because we've submitted our life to the word of God and we found freedom as opposed to seeking freedom in our flesh and casting off the restraint of the word of God. Um, I'm going to close out because it's really important that we do this. Um, I want you guys all to turn to Genesis 3. And what I want us to see is this issue of absolute truth. I want us to see the issue of absolute truth according to the word of God and what he says. But I also want us to see and clearly understand and identify this issue of relativism. But there's a more specific word that I'm actually going to introduce. And we'll actually find it in, we won't find the word itself, but we'll find the concept of it in Genesis 3. It's actually... Genesis 3, 1 through 6. So many of you guys know, this is all the way back to the garden. So I'm going to submit before you today that really the very first war that was ever taking place in the garden was over an issue of truth. But more specifically, it was over an issue of truth, but it was also over this issue of pragmatism. We we use the word being pragmatic. But the actual word 
pragmatism is defined as a non-speculative system of philosophy which regards the practical consequences and useful results of an idea as the test of truthfulness. Pragmatism is this. It's, it's when we gauge and we judge the practical consequences and the useful results of an idea as the test of truthfulness and which considers truth itself a process. The basic tenet of pragmatism is if it works, it's true. The end results of an idea or practice, therefore, determine its ultimate truthfulness and validity. Pragmatism starts at the end of the process of truth, and it works its way backwards. It starts with the result of an idea or practice. If these are desirable, if it's a desirable end, then it validates it as truth. the concept that led to the end. Truth, therefore, is subjective and changeable depending on the judgment of the one who is assessing the outcome. Through this process, man ends up creating truth as it suits or seems reasonable to him. So most of you know we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They're living in perfect fellowship and communion with God. Can you even imagine that? They walked with God in the cool of the day. And God's word to them was, there is one tree. Pretty simple. It wasn't complex at all. Not hard to understand. But it didn't really make sense. There's one tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of its fruit. Pretty simple. Like, this is your garden. You can do whatever you want. I'm walking with you in the cool of the day. We have perfect friendship and fellowship. There's just this one tree. It's the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch. Okay, pretty simple. Got the word. I got this. Okay, so then let's open the scene in uh, Genesis 3. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he's questioning what God said. Did God really say And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, she was referring to the knowledge of good and evil, God has said. So I love this. Right here, Eve, Eve is going back to the authority of what God said. She's going, God said. That's my answer. It's simple. I'm sticking to it. God said. I don't have to understand it. I don't have to get it. I don't even have to agree with it. God said. Takes all kind of the responsibility. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to be a brainiac. You don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to calculate it, figure it out. You don't have to be great at processing and analyzing because you don't have to figure out. You don't have to know. You just have to say, God said. It's in the word. It's very clear. It's black and white. Because he said it, that's why I do it. When you get questioned, when there's debate, all of those things, I don't know. God just said. So I'm okay. I'm okay with that. God said. It's simple. Childlike obedience. Because God said, and He knows better than me. I'm okay with that. How about if we lived our life that way? No, really. If we were really convinced, God knows better than me. Really? Really. No, you think you're pretty dang smart, don't you? You think you got it figured out? You think you know how to climb to success? You think you know how to win favor and affluence? You think you know. 
how to live in this life. That's why we live in rebellion to God. That's why we don't subject our life to the word of God. God said he's all wise. He's all knowing. He loves you and he has your best interest in mind. Because he said it, that's good enough. You don't have to understand it. It doesn't have to make sense to you. God said. So we actually find Eve. I love Eve. She didn't like immediately. Here we go, Eve. Come on, let's defend Eve a little. <laughs> she didn't like immediately be like, no. Maybe he didn't. Maybe. She didn't even start questioning. She retorted. She gave the answer and said, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, simple. You stated it, Steve. Steve should just run. <laughs> just run. State the facts. He said it. Run. But instead, here we find in verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, this is where we find pragmatism. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows. See, he's giving her the end result. He's jumping to the end result. And saying, let's make this all subjective to the end result. Is the end result worth it? Does the end result work in your reasoning and your understanding? Let's go to the end result. For God knows that in the day that you eat, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's true. That was the end result. But she didn't understand the horror of knowing good and evil. She should have just in innocent childlike faith once again said, but God said. <laughs> so therefore, that's how I align my life. So we actually find this is what Satan did right here. He questions the word of God. Did God say? Then he actually goes, and she, I love Eve. She actually, she brings it back to the source. He is the source of all truth. Keep it at the source that because he said it, that is why we do it. And then this is actually where we find Satan. He actually brings her to this, this place of rationalizing and reasoning. This is the end result. This is why he's not letting you do it. So you make up your own mind. Why not? You'll know good versus evil. I bet you at that point, the word evil, the concept of evil, there was like no framework. Right? Because they hadn't entered the world. These folks were the gateway for it. So what do we find? The, the strategy that the enemy actually uses is this understanding of pragmatism, the place of let's make truth subject to the end result. And you know what? That's actually what some of us do. We actually say, well, it's, God blessed it. No, he didn't. No, he absolutely did not. There's many things in our life that we may experience a form of blessing or success, but it's not because it was the blessing of God. There's a difference between the blessing of God and the endorsement of God. There's a difference in this understanding that there's many things that we might get by with and go, well, the end result worked out well. Worked out well for me. But you forgot in the process, what you did is instead of loving truth and adhering to truth, you did it your own way. You took on a humanistic form of attaining or aspiring to something through your own. The church of Jesus Christ, we do it all the time. Pragmatism. That instead of going back to the authority of the word of God, do you understand? This is pragmatism right here. My husband posted it for anybody that saw it. It was all about this article 
that how many churches will not address the issues of abortion, homosexuality. What was the other one? There was something else. Abortion, homosexuality. Oh, they, they, it talked about finances, the issue of tithing. That is so offensive. All of these issues that churches will not touch, these pastors behind closed doors will agree, yes, the word of God articulates it. It is very clear. But if I approach it from my pulpit, my numbers will dwindle. That is called pragmatism. You are trying to build something and get to an end result in your own wisdom and in your own strength. Instead of saying the word of God is truth, the source of truth is God himself. And I will not depart. See, this is where we have to understand, folks. Whether it's building a church, building a business, building a family, whatever it may be, we are continually presented with choices. Do we do it our own way and with a love for the spirit of truth? Or we do it in our own wisdom? This is precisely what Eve did. You can actually find this. I don't have time right now. I need to wrap it up. I can hear those children. <laughs> Mercy on the children workers, Lord. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you, because I don't have time right now to go through all of it. Are you laughing because I prayed for mercy for the children? <laughs> I'm going to give you a couple of examples. You can look them up yourself. We actually find that um, Sarah and Abraham, how many of you guys know the promise of the son that was given to them? So Sarai and Abram, she basically got Abram to sleep with Hagar to fulfill the, the God's promise. She kind of went, oh, I, I, got a way, I got a way I could do this. But it wasn't God's way. He, he got it set all by himself. He actually didn't need help. We actually find the, chi the child of promise came later. He's capable. He's able. He does not need your intervention. In fact, it would help the process if you would back off. So seriously. Do you understand that for some of us, our waiting period, like we're waiting for certain things, our time and period of waiting is determined by how we wait. How we wait. We can delay the process. The Lord's like, I have all the time in the world. I am not in a rush. <laughs> if you don't want to cling to me, adhere to me, if you don't actually want to learn the wisdom I'm trying to impart to you, I can wait another year. It's cool. All the time in the world. How are we waiting? She wasn't waiting very well. She got her husband to sleep with Hagar. <laughs> Come on, Sarah. Okay, so we actually find this is an example of pragmatism. Rebecca urging Jacob to deceive Isaac in order to get Esau's blessing. Trying to manipulate and maneuver a blessing there. How about when Israel approached Ai? How many of you guys know? Crazy, not so story. So when they go to Jericho, God gives them this crazy strategy. Circle it seven times. Be silent at the end. Big shout, you know, Hurrah, or whatever, God has given us a city. That's crazy. That's just crazy. It's crazy to think that that would work. It's crazy to think that these mammoth walls would fall down. But it worked. They simply trusted that his word was truth, and if he said it, they would do it. Because God said. God said, and it worked. So then they approach AI. Doesn't go so well. Because instead of trusting and following the source of truth, they did, decided to come with, up with their own way and their own rationalization and reasoning for how to do it. We find that Saul failed to wait for Samuel. 
but he offered burnt offerings himself. We find that David numbered his fighting men. We find uh, David's judgment was clouded when he built a cart in order to bring the ark. All of these examples of man kind of going, okay, I can work this out. I got this. I'm not going to find, I'm not going to follow the source of all truth. I'm going to do it my way. Back up, God. Watch me. I got this. It's going to be good. Sorry. It's going to fall on your face. It's not going to go so well for you. This issue of truth. And really for us as a people and as a congregation, even in a city like Boston, we can scheme and come up with great ideas to get students and, you know, build a movement. (laughs) But at the end of the day, I just want to say something. If we build a movement in our own strength, if we gather numbers over a uh, compromised message, because we don't want to touch anything controversial, that would actually cause us to be conformed to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. We just want a unifying, gathering body of numbers to make us feel good. But yet we're going to stay away. Like that article said, these pastors know. It actually talked about church attendance, but it actually specifically said that they actually can gauge when they, when they hit controversial issues, tithes drop. Tithes drop. Do you guys want to know something? The woman that funded Daryl and I for all of these years... When she met with us, she literally said, what you guys do in the city, I never want you to be subject to the approval of man. She said, I want your funding to come from outside because God is endorsing you and I never want you to have to subject your, your, your preaching to the opinion and the praise of man. I guarantee you this. Our church, because we do Sanctity of Life Sunday, because we do talk on the topic of one man and one woman and understanding the image of God being revealed through that in Genesis. We have complete, I'm just going to say to everybody here, complete love for every single person in humanity, no matter what they struggle with. But we also have no problem identifying it as sin. That just as if I am struggling with a a sin of gossiping, a sin of uh, uh, adultery, That sin is no different than somebody struggling with homosexuality. I will not justify it. I will not condone it. And I will not make you feel better because I myself do not want to feel better in my sin. I want the convicting power of the Holy Spirit as we saw in the word. It is his role to convict the world of sin. I want the spirit of truth more than anything else. I was texting back and forth with a a friend of mine, and I don't even remember what the article was that I sent her or what was happening, but I just said to her, I said, if ever comes a day that I would have to feel like I have to sell my soul to a perverted gospel to be in ministry, I'd rather work at Mickey D's. And I, for those of you that know my objection to that food, that's like the horror of all horrors, not just because of the pay, meaning the quality of food. Forget it. Never mind. If you don't know me, that was just offensive. Sorry. But just meaning the thought of a perverted gospel a thought of a watered-down gospel, a thought of everything that I'm talking about today, that there is truth and its source is in a person. It's not subject to the geographical location that you're building your ministry in and what works for that demographic. It is the eternal word of God and it does not change. And what we need as a body of believers is a love for the word. A life that is rooted and grounded in the word. I am going to say to every person under the sound of my voice, we are subject to deception. We are subject to 
cultural lies that change with every single year if we are not people that are rooted and grounded in the word of God. So I don't care what the theology is. I don't care what the debate is that you come across. If you cannot find the authority of it rooted and grounded in the word, forget what works in cultural trends. Forget what has to do with modern Christianity. If it does not find its source in the eternal truth of Jesus Christ, which is his word, we need to disregard it and throw it out. Why don't we stand to our feet?